Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? Was that Will? Now, I remember you met my grandfather before he passed away a few years back, but I can't remember. Did I ever tell you how much he loved clocks and watches? I don't think I knew that. I mean, I I knew that you used to go antiquing. Yeah, so when I was a kid, he ran this small flooring business. This was in Huntsville, Alabama. And, you know, at the front of his shop there, he also had this collection of antiques. And it was kind of like its own little antique shop. And he'd sell and trade pieces that he'd find at shows around the Southeast. And it was one of my favorite places to be when I visited him. I'd either be hiding in the back in the rolls of carpet sure. or <laughs> pretending I was doing something really important at this antique roll-top desk he kept in there. But, you know, it always seemed like my granddad's favorite things to collect and trade were these old clocks and watches. So if you were in the shop or at his home and you weren't used to it, the ticking and the chiming of all those clocks could just make people crazy. But I always loved it. But it was kind of strange because he didn't seem to be looking for the fanciest or the most expensive watches he could find. He just liked to find ones that were interesting to him. You'd sometimes see him wearing a watch that you hadn't seen before. And if you asked him where he'd gotten it, he'd just say, well, your cousin Sam and I liked each other's watches, so we just trade it. And that was just kind of the <laughs> way he was. He just liked uh-huh. having them and have other people get to experience them as well. But, you know, my grandfather is obviously not alone in his fascination with time pieces and time in general. And the way we think about and talk about time has changed so much over the years, from the birth of time zones to thinking about time travel to the disputes around what official time actually is. There's just so much we want to get to today, so let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hot Ticketer. 
And on the other side of the soundproof glass, showing off his brand new Omega Speedmaster watch. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, I don't know if you know this, Mango, but right there is the infamous moon watch. Oh, my God. Tristan's told me like 20 times already this morning. That's a moon watch. <laughs> Such a show off. I know the Speedmaster has been like the go-to watch for NASA for like, you know, ever since even before the moon landings took place. But I do think it's really nerdy and really cool that he has one. (laughs) Well, I would probably be sporting it too if I had one. But if you're listening, Omega, you can always throw us a couple of moon watches our way. So we're we're here. You know how to find us. And (laughs) a little bit later, we'll talk about exactly why NASA is so big on the Speedmaster brand, as well as the stories behind a few other clocks and watches. But You know, before we get to the specific timekeepers, I thought we should kick things off by talking a little bit about time itself. I mean, it's really the thing that drives and defines our lives in so many ways. And you think about how often we talk about it. We spend it. We save it. We waste it. We treasure it. But what even is time? I mean, is it an intrinsic part of the universe or just something we made up? So I want to turn this over to you, Mango, and see if you can just go ahead and tell us, like, what is time? Over to you. Yeah, I'm sure in like two minutes, I'll be able to get through what time is. It's gonna be awesome. (laughs) I mean, quantum physicists aren't even convinced that time exists. So I I think it would take a little more explaining than we can give it. But uh, maybe we should just say it's not a thing. Yeah, that's that that might be the answer. End of episode. But I mean, (laughs) I think what they're arguing is more that time doesn't exist in the way that we usually think about it, you know, as this kind of ever moving line that only goes in one direction. And Physicists would say time is a little bit more like space. All of it just sort of exists at once and doesn't actually unfold in this chain of moments, which, of course, is the way we as humans perceive it. Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe a better answer for people is just like time is the stuff clocks run on. I I feel like (laughs) that feels like a suitable answer. (laughs) I feel like I can get behind that for this episode. I mean, I, I think we're more interested in the way that humans perceive and talk about time. So We'll probably leave relativity and causality for another episode because it's all fascinating stuff. But I I like your idea of how to frame this for today. So one thing I think is fascinating, and it's something you mentioned, is how we experience time as a chain of moments. But have you ever stopped to think about how long exactly a moment is? You mean like numerically or what? I mean, I, I, I feel like a moment is just like that, just like a snap. That's it. That's how long a moment is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as scientific as that system you've given us sounds, like it turns out we used to be a lot more precise about moments than we are today. In fact, this is actually something I hadn't heard before this week, but apparently there was once a widely accepted definition for exactly how long a moment lasts. And this was true from the Middle Ages all the way up through the 19th century. So this definition was that a moment was precisely one fortieth of an hour or about 90 seconds. 140. Are you joking? That that seems way too long. I'm telling you, Mango, a, a moment is just that. A moment is just a snap. That's what a moment is. <laughs> so I actually agree with you. I, I lean more in that direction. But a moment in history is actually like an era or it could be an entire decade of social upheaval. Yeah. And it can really be as long or short as you want it to be. And I think that kind of highlights the disparity between our approach to keeping track of time and the way we actually think about it. I, I mean, we, we use like uh, complex things like the movements of stars and the radiation cycles of atoms to establish this sense of accurate timekeeping. And that all convinces ourselves that there is such a thing as correct time. But, you know, for all the science and the precision behind those systems, we all still perceive and speak about time in an incredibly subjective way. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I do think in a really meaningful sense, time is something of a, you know, more of a social construct. And you know, forget about moments and minutes, because we also measure time with concepts derived from our socialization. I mean, think about things like work days and weekends and being on time or fashionably late. I mean, all of these things are ways of marking time that were definitely born from humans living and working together. And What's interesting is that because every society is different, there actually is a lot of variance out there when it comes to perceiving and talking about time. In fact, listen to this breakdown of how different cultures view time. There was this article from uh, Science Daily, and so here's what they had to say about it. Different languages also embody different worldviews, different ways of organizing the world around us, and time is a case in point. For example, Swedish and English speakers prefer to mark the duration of events by referring to physical distances. For example, a short break, a long wedding. The passage of time is perceived as distance traveled. But Greek and Spanish speakers tend to mark time by referring to physical quantities. For example, a small break or a big wedding. The passage of time is perceived as growing volume. You know, I, I always love hearing how other cultures handle their spatial metaphors. And, you know, for instance, I was reading in Scientific American about this secluded group of tribespeople in Papua New Guinea, and they're called the Yupno. And they live in these remote villages way up in the mountains, and they don't have any roads, electricity, and, of course, they interact very sparingly with the outside world. But a group of researchers visited the tribe a few years back, and they found that these tribespeople all made the same spontaneous gestures when speaking about time. Like, the researchers started filming and analyzing these gestures, and what they found was that the Yupno people all gestured downward towards the mouth of the local river whenever they mm. spoke about the past. And whenever they spoke about the future, they actually gestured uphill to the river's source. I love stuff like that. I mean, we always think of time as being linear, you know, like the past is behind you and the future always lies ahead, I guess. Yeah, but for the Yepno, it sounds like the past is at the bottom and the future is at the top. So basically, time flows uphill in their minds rather than in a straight line. I'm trying to think about what the logic would be behind that, though. Do you, do you know why that is? Apparently, the researchers didn't find out for certain, but their best guess is that the Yepno's procession of time comes from, like, the knowledge of their own history. And I guess their ancestors came to the region by sea and then climbed up the steep mountain valley to where they established the village. So it's possibly that the Yupno connect sort of that geography and the lowlands with the past and think of time as something that travels upward just like they did. Hmm. I just think that's beautiful to think about and just how different that is because we're also used to thinking of time as something we have no sway over. And I guess it's kind of nice to be reminded that so many things about it actually are shaped by our own perspectives. Yeah, that's true. Like, even once we started using clocks, everyone just set them to noon based on when the sun was the highest in the sky where they lived. So, like, one community's time would be several minutes off from the time in a town just 100 miles away or so. And, you know, having a ton of different local times like that wasn't that much of a problem at first. You know, this was still a time before rapid communication, rapid transportation, you know, so it didn't really matter that different communities kept different times. But as human beings began to explore and, you know, develop new ways to travel, this uh, global economy started to form. Suddenly the world found itself needing a way to really measure and communicate time with one another. And that's really how we wound up with things like time zones or Greenwich Mean Time. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about that history. I mean, the pivotal moment that you're talking about really started during what we would call the age of exploration and ran right through the Industrial Revolution. 
For example, here in the U.S., that you know, time took a major leap towards standardization in the late 1800s. And when you look at why that was, I mean, this was largely due to that long-distance travel that was finally possible because of the rise of railroads. Definitely. And the invention of trains really changed the way we look at time in all sorts of ways. For instance, even though people had tried to predict the future for thousands of years, we didn't think about the possibility of traveling to the future until after the train came along. And once we had a machine that could zip across these vast distances, these authors like H.G. Wells began to dream of machines that could travel time as if it were a rail line itself. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting connection, but yeah, of course, railroads also force people to think practically about time, not just creatively. And you think about trying to coordinate train schedules across all these different local times. I mean, that had to have been just this huge headache. And, yeah. you know, so it was November of 1883 that the American railroads adopted a standard time system, and it was based on the four time zones that we're familiar with today here. There's Eastern, Central, Mountain, and Pacific And so the clocks within each time zone were to be synchronized. And then as a result of that, the railroads only had to keep track of these four local times instead of the dozens that they were having to keep track of before. And that was obviously this big improvement all around. Like, you know, apparently a lot of people didn't see it that way at first. But I was reading this article in Smithsonian. And there were a bunch of cities that insisted on keeping their own local time zones for everything except train schedules. And others refused to switch over that, too. You know, Mm. um, it it was mostly because these cities bristled at the idea of railroads kind of upending their established way of doing things. Like, they just didn't want to change. Like, there was this one editorial in a Cincinnati newspaper where the author actually proclaimed, quote, let the people of Cincinnati stick to the truth as it is written by the sun, moon, and stars. (laughs) I mean, that is what they do best in Cincinnati. Everybody knows that. But Uh (laughs) I mean, you're right, though. There was a staunch opposition to this changeover for years after the time zone system was introduced. And so much so that, in fact, the, the country didn't officially adopt it until, I think, 35 years later. And That was with the Standard Time Act of 1918. Now, this also established daylight saving time, for better or worse. Yeah, that's right. But America did take another important step towards standard time in years between. And in fact, just one year after the railroads introduced U.S. time zones, delegates from 25 other countries gathered in Washington, D.C., for what was called the um, the International Meridian Conference. And during this conference, the delegates voted to recognize the Greenwich Meridian in London as this common point from which nations would measure time and longitude. And so how did they decide on Greenwich Meridian? And, and, and I mean, you can draw meridians at all different points on the globe, of course. So what, what made this the clear choice? Well, for one thing, a lot of countries have been using the Greenwich Meridian as the prime meridian for decades by the time the conference was held. So In England, the line had been established as zero degrees longitude in 1851. And this fixed line allowed merchant ships and explorers to keep better track of their east-west position while at sea. Like, they could use the position of the sun and stars to get an idea of the time on board the ship and then compare that to the local time at the prime meridian to determine their approximate location. So British sailors started traveling with chronometers set to Greenwich time, and soon the practice spread to countries all over the world. But even though this practice was legitimized at the 1884 conference, there were still some holdouts. You know, 
just like there were when railroads tried to introduce time zones. Mm -hmm. France, in particular, didn't like the idea of using British time and longitude as the world standard. Instead, they were pushing for Paris to be the site of the prime meridian. Right. Of course, you know, no one else was really interested in this. And the Greenwich meridian had already sort of like proven effective. So delegates Mm -hmm. figured, why start over? So how did France take this? Did they take the loss in stride or did they pull a Cincinnati and throw a fit? (laughs) <laughs> oh, they definitely threw a fit. I mean, the French delegates abstained from voting at the conference. Uh, they even decided to adopt Paris Mean Time as their national time. But eventually they had to switch to Greenwich Mean Time, you know, like a few decades later. But even then, some people in France would refer to GMT as, quote, the mean time of Paris retarded nine minutes and 21 seconds. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's why we've always said that France is really like the Cincinnati of nations. You yeah. Know? Um, that old saying. All right. Well, since you brought up GMT, we should probably talk a little bit about what that is and how exactly it's determined. Sure. But before we get into all that, let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about mankind's many varied attempts to keep time. All right, Mango, so we talked a lot about the worldwide impact of the Greenwich Meridian and Greenwich Mean Time, but I'm not done with this topic just yet because I'm still a little hazy on the specifics. So do you have a sense of what we're actually referring to when we use these terms? Yeah, so we always think of the prime meridian as an imaginary line running around the world, just like we do with the equator. And it definitely is that. But the Greenwich Meridian is also a physical line. Like there's this bronze strip 
that runs through a courtyard at the Royal Observatory in uh, in London, and it represents the boundary between the eastern and western hemispheres. Huh. So if you were to stand with one foot on either side of the line, you'd technically be in two different hemispheres at the same time? I mean, kind of. These days, the prime meridian is determined by this complex statistical solution. It involves, I, th- I think, algorithms and the coordination with the International Bureau of Weights and Measurements. It's it's way too complicated to get into here. But the basic result is that the physical line in the observatory courtyard is actually about 10 feet off from where the imaginary line is that we might go by. Okay, so I see. So I get that GMT is based on the local time at that position of the prime meridian in Greenwich. So that explains the G and the T, but what about the M? How do means fit into this whole thing? Yeah, the mean is just the average that's used when determining the accurate time in Greenwich. So the Earth obviously rotates at an uneven speed, and the average just helps account for that. Okay, well, that actually clears up a good bit. There is one story that I want to tell here while we're on this subject of GMT, because there's the Belville. The, the, are you familiar with the Belville family? I do know about them, yeah. Yeah, so just for our listeners, it's the family that made a living by literally selling time to their neighbors. So just in case you haven't heard this story, it starts with an astronomer and a meteorologist. His name was John Belville. And so he began working as an assistant at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich back in the 1830s. Now, during this time, he would always set his pocket watch to the observatory's clock and If you think about it, that was a pretty awesome job perk because this was the 1830s, so it was tough to get the right time if you didn't live really close to the observatory. Uh I mean, there were no radios, no telephones, or even telegraphs to communicate that time to other parts of London. So unless you had access to the observatory, much like John did, you were pretty much out of luck and your clocks were likely to be off by, you know, at least a few minutes. And so John looks at this problem and he sees this money-making opportunity and he starts (laughs) selling the time to a network of subscribers all over the city. Now, each week he would get his pocket watch certified at the observatory and then he would set off to visit London's clockmakers and shipping companies and even just some ordinary citizens who really wanted to know what time it was exactly. And so <laughs> these customers, they would pay an annual fee for this service. And John would provide this thing for like 20 more years until he passed away. It's unbelievable that that he thought to make subscriptions for this thing is just incredible. But, uh, you know, but what I love about the story is how easily it could have ended just there, right? Like uh, by the time John died, time signals were being sent by telegraph to anyone who owned one. So you know, his weekly visits weren't really necessary anymore. But after 20 years of trusting John's pocket watch, many of his subscribers couldn't stomach the thought of setting their clocks to an untested piece of technology like the telegraph. It's almost like in uh, Japan when they put out calculators, uh, people need to have abacuses attached to them so that oh, they can right. double check the work yeah. of the, the calculators. But yeah. uh, so a- anyway, there were all these people who were desperate to maintain the service they knew and loved. And, and these loyal customers kept asking John's much younger widow, Maria, to carry on the family business. And so she did for 36 years. I mean, Maria carried her husband's watch all over London. uh, But then when she retired in 1892, her subscribers still weren't ready to give up the service. So they started petitioning for Belleville's daughter, Ruth, to take up this uh, business of London's timekeeper. And then she did too. Wow. I mean, you'd think the story might end there, but it keeps (laughs) going. And so even after making these weekly rounds for an additional 48 years, Ruth only stopped in 1940 because World War II had made it too dangerous to walk the streets. I mean, 
If you think about it, she was 86 years old. Radios <laughs> had been broadcasting the time for decades at this point, but the family business was somehow still lucrative enough for her to keep up with it for her entire adult life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing that this family turned like this niche service into basically a, a dynasty, right? Like it's a multi-generational family business. And it's also amazing to me that like the Royal Observatory was just down with this arrangement. Like they could have shut it down at any point, but they just never did. Hmm. Well, as long as we're doling out credit here, I think we should probably pause for a minute to give a shout out to Belleville's Pocket Watch, which actually even had a nickname. It was Arnold and it was named after the person who made it. And all three Belvilles relied on this same 18th century pocket watch when they were making their rounds. And it was a state-of-the-art watch when John Belville purchased it nearly 100 years before Ruth's retirement. And after all those intervening decades, it continued to provide time accurate to within, I think, a tenth of a second. So it's remarkable oh, wow. when you consider how old this watch was. So as a reward for such faithful service, Arnold is now enshrined at the Clockmakers Museum in London, and it's still on display there today. So nice work, Arnold. <laughs> it is amazing that like when you give something a name, it just becomes so much more charming. Like totally. if, if you called your toaster Oliver, suddenly it's a much more oh, <laughs> interesting yeah. toaster. But you know, what's interesting about pocket watches like Arnold is that they actually represent a tipping point in the history of timekeeping. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal, but but what do you mean exactly? So, obviously, humans had tried and failed to keep accurate time for a long time by this point, you know, before we had these mechanical clocks run by gears and springs. And early civilizations like Egypt or China, they developed sundials to track the passage of time. These other civilizations created water clocks as a workaround. So, rather than relying on the stars and the sun, you know, they used water to steadily drip into a container that had these painted lines around the side to mark different points of the day. And of course, this method had its problems too. You know, water freezes and that could effectively stop the process. But uh, many of these inconsistencies all fell by the wayside with the introduction of these mechanical clocks. This system just provided a way more reliable way of keeping time and one that wasn't influenced by changes in temperature or lack of light. And as mechanical clocks became more and more common and more portable, the act of timekeeping almost became more entwined with daily life than ever before. Okay, I mean, I, I think I see what you're saying. So pocket watches were kind of the breakthrough that allowed the average citizen to start keeping track of time in this really specific way. I mean, you know, the old way of doing things where most people were just having to keep up with morning, noon, and night. I mean, people could now easily gauge, you know, not only the individual hour, but down to the minute of the day. Exactly. Smithsonian has this uh, really great article on the history of early timekeeping, and there's one part I want to read. It's a nice breakdown of the pocket watch's impact. It goes like this, quote, Affordable pocket watches weren't common until the 19th century, but once they arrived, they quickly invaded the world of commerce. When you could time your actions with those of a remote trading partner, new styles of just-in-time commerce could emerge. Pocket watch-wielding conductors meant trains could begin to keep regular schedules, Scientists and astronomers could conduct more precise experiments. Portable watches even made it easier for lovers to conduct illicit affairs by arranging to meet at a preordained spot in time. But having a watch wasn't just about keeping to the clock. It was a cultural marker, a performance of punctuality. Every time you pulled out your watch, conspicuously and in public, you signaled to others that you were reliable. I mean, that's interesting because you, you never really think about how much of a game changer portability was for timepieces. But I mean, it makes sense that it would be. But, it, you know, it's also easy to imagine how the pocket watch was 
kind of this springboard to the wristwatch. I mean, pulling one of those out of your pocket is easy when you're standing still, but it's a different story when you're doing something active, like if you're jogging or riding in a car or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's obviously much easier to take a quick glance at your wrist. I mean, the problem was that when the first wristwatches started showing up in the 18th and 19th centuries, they were marketed almost exclusively to women. They had leather bands or metallic bands. They were small. They had these delicate watch faces, and they were primarily worn as jewelry. So men tended to shy away from them. And watchmakers came to view the idea of strapping a watch to your wrist as pretty silly. In fact, there was this uh, one German watchmaker who referred to the custom as, quote, the idiotic fashion of carrying one's clock on the most restless part of the body exposed to the most extreme temperature variations. One hopes it'll soon disappear. I love reading or hearing quotes about something like this that are just seem so harmless and people speak so passionately about uh-huh. it. I don't, I don't think I've heard anybody speak so passionately against wristwatches, but obviously this guy didn't get his way. So what changed? Well, the turning point really came during World War One. Officers started using them because it was easier to coordinate attacks with a watch on your wrist than it was to, like, fumble in your pockets. So as the war went on, watchmakers started rolling out new models with soldiers in mind. They had these larger faces, these more prominent numbers to improve legibility. And um, in the end, this manlier take on the wristwatch was this huge hit with soldiers, millions of whom continued wearing them once the war was over. And sales figures actually reflect the sea change. Like in uh, 1920, wristwatches only accounted for 15% of all watches made in America. But by 1935, the number had risen to 85% of American watches. So clearly all this rebranding paid off. Wow. And only, uh, what, 15 years. That That is amazing. Well, you know, since we're on the subject of wristwatches as status symbols and how wars can kind of help broaden the market for them. I do feel like we have to talk about maybe the most famous luxury watch of them all, and that is, of course, the Rolex. Yeah, that's another great wartime story. But before we get to it, let's take another quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. All right, well, so what's the scoop on Rolex and how exactly did it become a luxury brand? Well, like you explained, the First World War really established the wristwatch's new role in combat. And that's something that carried over into the Second World War as well. And the Rolex brand was this especially popular choice among British pilots who really considered the Swiss timepieces to be the most accurate ones in the world. So long before they became status symbols here in the States, Rolexes were already treasured abroad for their utility, really. And you know, the only problem was that whenever these British pilots were shot down and taken prisoner, their German captors always confiscated their watches. So word of this gets to the co-founder of Rolex, and he decides to take action on the troops' behalf. So the deal was that any British pilot who lost their Rolex in the line of duty could simply send him a letter explaining the situation. And the company would then send out a replacement watch along with a note telling the soldier not to, quote, even think of settlement during the war. So that's a really nice gesture. And I I guess they were kind of like IOUs when they came back to town, they could get these watches. But realistically, like how many POWs were going to be allowed to send away for watches from these camps? Well, here's what's surprising about this whole thing is that there were actually thousands of soldiers who responded to Rolex's offer. And as for getting the watches behind enemy lines, apparently there were some German camps that gave special privileges to British airmen, including the chance to order and keep these watches. So as you might imagine, this proved to be a bad idea for Germany in a few different ways. I mean, so for one thing, the Rolex program boosted the captured soldiers' morale. And after all, the guy who had extended the offer to them, Hans Wilsdorf, was himself a German-born expatriate. Now, by allowing soldiers to take on these IOUs that you mentioned, he was basically saying, hey, I believe the Allies are going to win this thing, so go ahead and pay me when this is all over. That's pretty fascinating, and I I really do love it. You know, it it never occurred to me that the arrangement could be taken, you know, as this vote of confidence, which is really cool. But you said the program also led to other problems for the Germans? Well, that's definitely true. I mean, some of these replacement Rolexes played pretty critical roles in the British escape attempts. I mean, for instance, you know the so-called Great Escape of 1944? Mm -hmm. Well, the men who helped dig the tunnels had to covertly disperse the excess soil in the prison yard. And so to help them with this, some of them were using Rolex watches to time the movements of the guards. That's pretty awesome. But if the Rolex program was only open to British soldiers, like, how did it become such a hot brand in the U.S.? Well, that was actually another unexpected benefit from the Rolex war campaign. So when American servicemen were overseas, they heard their British allies go on and on about how these Rolexes were so reliable and how the company had made this amazing replacement service for them. And you know, so w- once the war was over, many Americans had this newfound appreciation for these watches. And while Rolex had never found much success in the States prior to the war, After the war, the brand became this go-to choice for Americans who wanted what they saw as a classy wristwatch. 
Well, speaking of classy wristwatches, did you know that the world's first calculator watch was sold exclusively through these high-end retailers like Tiffany and uh, Neiman Marcus? <laughs> That's pretty funny to imagine. Yeah, I mean, it sounds ridiculous because we mostly think of like calculator watches as almost like tacky plastic slabs that nerds used to wear in the 80s. But before companies like Casio and Seiko took the design mainstream in the late 70s and early 80s, calculator watches were almost more of a luxury item. So I, I guess if you took the timing of that, it, it does make sense. Like we were still a decade or two away from computers being common fixtures in the home. So this idea of having like a mini computer, although it's you know incredibly basic one strapped to your wrist, probably did seem like a little bit of a luxury. But I mean, the real question is, how much were they charging for these things if they were being sold at Tiffany of all places? Yeah, so I, I was curious about this too. And it turns out when the first calculator watches were released in 1975, they were cast in solid gold, and they retailed for about $4,000. And for reference, at the time, a year of tuition at Harvard cost about 200 bucks less than that. So depending on how much dough you had, you could either attend an Ivy League school or you could wear a tiny computer on your wrist. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough choice. I'm not sure which I'd decide on that. Actually, I was curious. I, I've been using my own calculator watch while you're saying, or just my computer, to uh -huh. check the inflation on that number. So if you do the math, in today's money, that golden calculator watch would cost you nearly $18,000. So I don't know, Mango. I, I don't want to hurl any accusations, but I think they might have been overcharging just a little bit for those things. Yeah, I, I think a lot of folks agreed with you even back then. And it took a year or so for the same company to come out with what they build as an economy version of the calculator watch. These were made of steel instead of gold. And the result was that they only cost about $50 or, you know, right around $200 after inflation. And from there, competitors drove the price even lower with these cheaper models costing under 20 bucks by the early 80s. I like how it's either $50 or $4,000. It seems like <laughs> a little bit of a jump there. But all right, well, before we wrap things up for this episode, we did promise at the outset that we'd circle back to the infamous Moonwatch. And I can tell from the way Tristan keeps flashing his wrist that he's going to hold us to that promise. <laughs> well, lucky for us, there's a story that we both wanted to tell anyway, because an awful lot of attention gets paid to Neil Armstrong. And, you know, as the first man on the moon, that's certainly warranted. But the downside to that focus is that the other lunar pioneers tend to get overlooked, including, among others, the Omega Speedmaster, a.k.a. the first watch on the moon. Which is just a grave injustice. The timepiece is uh -huh. everywhere, no question. But wouldn't this just take us back to Armstrong? I mean, he was wearing a Speedmaster on the Apollo 11 mission, so wasn't his the first watch on the moon? Well, that's the thing. The electronic timer in the lunar module had malfunctioned during the mission. So Armstrong actually had to leave his watch behind before ever setting foot on the moon. So that actually means that while Buzz Aldrin ultimately became the second man on the moon, it was his Speedmaster that became the first watch on the moon. You know, I bet that continues to be like this big consolation for Buzz to be able to <laughs> brag about that. But um all right, well, now we know why it's called the Moon Watch. Let, let's back up for a minute and talk about why the Speedmaster was the right watch for the job. And just to be clear, several watches made it into space before the Speedmaster. Both Russians and Americans had used watches in orbit well before the Apollo missions. But in order to survive an actual spacewalk, NASA knew that the average wristwatch wasn't going to cut it. And that was because whichever watch made it onto the moon would not only need to be water and temperature resistant, but shockproof and, most importantly, capable of withstanding 12 Gs of acceleration. 
So to that end, an engineer at NASA named James Reagan, he was tasked with writing out the specs for such a watch and sending them to potential manufacturers. Now, according to Reagan, the secrecy and the complexity of the lunar landing made the specs nearly impossible to decipher. So as he put it, the watch specs were so nebulous that people couldn't even tell what we were going to do with them. Yeah, I I remember reading that even though NASA approached like 10 different companies, only four of them ever actually submitted watches to be evaluated. And those tests went on for months. I I think like one of the watches was eliminated because it had this like cracked crystal during decompression. One had hands of the watch that actually warped in the test oven. (laughs) And in the end, the Omega Speedmaster was the only watch to meet all of those requirements. And to this day, it's still the only watch that's ever been flight qualified by NASA. I mean, it's definitely an impressive track record, especially when you look at the crucial role that the watch has played in later missions. For instance, everybody knows how troubled the Apollo 13 mission was, but what a lot of people forget is that the crew likely wouldn't have made it back to Earth if not for their Speedmasters. And, you know, they had to shut down their computers just to be able to save power, and so the crew managed to navigate their way home using measurements gleaned from their hand-wound watches. Yeah, I mean, you'll sometimes hear the complaint that our increased focus on timekeeping has made humans slaves to time. Like, I feel like you hear this criticism a lot. It was a criticism that was leveled at pocket watches and wristwatches back in the day. And now we hear the same thing about the ever-present watches on our smartphones or our computer screens. But I do think it's worth remembering that our obsession with marking and tracking time has also led to tons of positive outcomes. You know, it saved astronauts from an otherwise uncertain doom. And uh, it also lets us know when it's time to go downstairs and get a big bowl of ramen. So, you know, having a clock definitely has its benefits. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty important role that it plays. But all right, so what do you say we set the clock for a fact off and then we can go scarf some of those noodles that you're talking about? Because now I'm hungry. (laughs) Yes, please. So how about we start with the fact about the author of A Brief History of Time. Did you know that at Stephen Hawking's funeral, it was made clear that time travelers were welcome? (laughs) And this was somewhat of a nod to a party invitation Hawking had once sent out in 2009. It read, quote, you are cordially invited to a reception for time travelers hosted by Professor Stephen Hawking to be held in the past at the University of Cambridge, Gonville at KS College. I'm sure I said those colleges wrong. Hawking had, of course, already thrown the party back in June of that year, and he sent out the invitation later to make sure that only time travelers would show up. (laughs) Unfortunately, he was left to party alone in a decorated room with a banner that read, uh, Welcome Time Travelers. (laughs) Oh, that's a bummer. I think that probably would have changed history just a little bit if somebody had shown up. Wow. All right, so did you know that the times on the boards at Grand Central Station are intentionally off by a full minute? Now, this is, of course, because it can be dangerous when passengers are rushing and end up falling or colliding with each other. And this means that the trains are actually pulling out of the station a minute after the posted departure times. Now, this may seem trivial, but the idea is that those heading quickly to a train may relax just a little bit and know that they're going to get there. And the studies actually back this up because Grand Central actually has one of the lowest rates of slips and falls of all the major stations in the U.S. I love that there's a measurement of this, but that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's amazing. I think about that every time I go to Grand Central from now on. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like we can't have an episode on time and not talk about cuckoo clocks. 
So I'm here to tell you about the world's largest cuckoo clock. It's in Triburg, Germany. The bird alone <laughs> is 14 feet long and weighs 330 pounds. Oh, wow. The nice. pendulum is another 26 feet and weighs 220 pounds. So this is not a petite clock. Right. There, there's another clock that's trying to edge in for the claim to be the largest cuckoo clock in the world. <laughs> it, it's uh, in Sugar Creek, Ohio. This clock is 23 feet tall and 24 feet wide. And Guinness has yet to declare one of them a winner. So I think we should just celebrate the fact that there are two unbelievably large cuckoo clocks out there. That definitely seems worth celebrating. That is funny. <laughs> I like the idea that Guinness is just like ignoring to wait on some even bigger clock. They're just not going to pay <laughs> attention yet. Well, when you look at the working hours of the richest Americans today versus a few decades back, it's interesting to see that the wealthy are working much longer now than they used to. And that makes the findings from a study out of the Anderson School of Management, this is at UCLA, that much more interesting. Because in a study of 4,000 people or a survey of 4,000 people at various age, employment, and income levels, when people were asked whether they would take more money or more time if they could get it, about two-thirds of the people chose money. But the study found that those who chose time over money were generally happier people. And this was after controlling for various income levels. So it is pretty interesting to see that. Huh. So I forgot to mention a Stephen Hawking fact earlier. Did you know that A Brief History of Time was on the London Sunday Times bestseller list for an unbelievable 237 weeks after it published? And this was in 1988 which is so many weeks of people pretending to understand what they were reading. I mean, that is years. That really is unbelievable. I will say, I have to admit, every time I would see somebody holding that book, even though it is a fascinating read, you you do have this tendency to look at it and be like, do you really understand what this book is saying? Because I'm not sure I did. But All right, well, I've got a quick one, too. I decided we should throw in a fact about Cindy Lauper because of her song, Time After Time. And I didn't realize this, but her debut solo album, which was called She's So Unusual, came out in 1983, and it was the first debut female album to have four songs hit the top five on the charts, which is unbelievable. So it included Time After Time, and of course, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. You know what? I I have a song fact as well. It's about uh, the song Time Is On My Side. You mean like that's uh, that's the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah, that's the one. So... It was actually first written by Jerry Ragavoy and performed by a jazz trombonist, Kai Winding. But then soul singer Irma Thomas and, of course, the Rolling Stones made it a song almost everyone knew. And it became the Rolling Stones' first top 10 hit in the U.S. You know, I feel like we we both ended up with facts that had to do with songs with the word time in them. So I've got a challenge for you here, Mango. What do you say that we have a little bit of a back and forth where we have to name songs with the word time in the title And then you also have to give the name of the performer or performers. What do you say to this? Yeah, I'm up for this. All right, you go first. Let's see how far we can go. Uh, uh, If I could turn back time with Cher. Oh, I love that you started out (laughs) with the Cher one. I'm going to start out with one that's like equally respectable. Just the song Time, of course, by Hootie and the Blowfish, big during our (laughs) high school years. Um, Summertime by uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Nice. You went a little more sophisticated there. Um, For the Longest Time, or maybe it's just called The Longest Time by Billy Joel. Does anyone really know what time it is? Chicago. Nice. Tomorrow is a Long Time by Bob Dylan. One More Time by Daft Punk. Nice. All right, I've got a great one. Maybe the best of all time. I've had the time of my life, you know, from Dirty Dancing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Who sings that? Wait. Oh, no. (laughs) 
There's so many other songs I could have chosen. Wait, wait, wait. I should get credit because nobody knows who sang this, right? It's, was it Patrick like, Swayze? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a Patrick Swayze original. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm going to look it up here. Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. Oh, uh, come on. Nobody even knows that. that. Why did I go with that? But you know what? I'm going to play true to the game, and uh, I'm going to give it to you. You you have won today. Congratulations, Mango. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, I'm sure we've forgotten a lot of terrific facts about watches and time and clocks and all of that, and we always love hearing those facts from you. So please send those to us, part-time genius at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.